Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Today, Janet Yellen was up on Capitol Hill. It was the first of her two-day testimonies. She was before the United States Senate today. Tomorrow, she's up before the House of Representatives, where she talks about monetary policy. And then you have a bunch of senators and congressmen that really uh, engage in political grandstanding. I mean, to me, a lot of the people asking Janet Yellen questions are really just trying to speak for sound bites for their local media. They're trying to score brownie points with their own constituents, and they ask all sorts of ridiculous things. One senator had to make some comments about global warming. I mean, do you think global warming is really uh, one of the one of the things that the Fed considers when it's setting interest rates is, you know, what's going on with global warming? Uh, they're all trying to bring up their own agenda. You know, Elizabeth Warren is up there and she's trying to get Janet Yellen to criticize the Trump administration's efforts to potentially roll back Dodd-Frank because she believes that it was the banks that caused the financial crisis. She doesn't lay any of the blame at the foot of Congress itself with Fannie or Freddie or the Federal Reserve with the artificially low interest rates. She thinks it was just Wall Street greed that blew up Wall Street and that the reason that we don't ha- we haven't had another financial crisis was because of the, the great legislation that was passed Dodd-Frank and that somehow if any bit of that is rolled back, we're just going to unleash another wave, wave of rampant Wall Street uh, speculation, and they're going to blow up the economy all over again. You know, probably, you know, one of the dumbest comments, we get this all the time, was from one of the senators about why we need more minorities. This particular senator, and he wasn't even a minority himself. Usually it's, you know, you get a black uh, senator or congressman asking this type of question. The uh, senator asked Janet Yellen, why, you know, we need more African-Americans on the Fed. We don't have enough African-Americans. And we need to have some there because, you know, blacks represent a significant percentage of the population or the workforce, and they need some representation at the Fed. And I'm thinking, what is this guy talking about? I mean, why? I mean, do you have to be black to uh, conduct monetary policy on behalf of other blacks? I I mean, does that mean that only white people can conduct monetary policy for white people? I mean, what what is black monetary policy? I mean, I wonder what it is. What would a black banker at the Fed do differently than a white banker simply because they happen to be black? I mean, it doesn't matter. Even if they grew up in a particular environment, right, and they're trying to say, well, culturally, you know, they share this cultural experience. Well, what does that have to do with monetary policy? None of that matters. I mean, either interest rates are too high or they're too low, and you have to set the appropriate monetary policy, and the decision about where interest rates should be is going to be made without any uh, regard to your background, 
you know, how you grew up, whether you grew up in a broken family or whether you had an intact family, whether you grew up in a poor neighborhood or a rich neighborhood, the appropriate level of interest rates is going to be what it is, regardless of that. Now, of course, I don't think anybody should be setting interest rates. I think this whole thing is ridiculous. I don't think we should even have a Fed, let alone worry about uh, the racial uh, uh, you know, breakdown of the members. But to the extent that you buy into the nonsense, that interest rates should be set by a bunch of people, right? Instead of the free market setting interest rates, the way the free market sets all of the prices. If you think we need a group of people trying to discern what the appropriate rate of interest should be, what difference does it make whether they're white or black, whether they're male or female, gay or straight, they should all be deriving at the same uh, result. And if you're going to say, if you're going to accept the fact that different races may come up with different policy based on their race, then it's an admission that the whole thing is nonsense and they shouldn't even be doing it in the first place. So let's just shut it down. But, you know, before I, you know, even get to what was going on at the hearing, before the hearing started, I was watching on CNBC and Steve Leisman there is talking about Yellen, the fact that she's going to be speaking. And one of the things he, he mentions is, you know, people are concerned that, you know, if the Fed waits too long, to raise rates, that it could end up being behind the curve. And this could be a problem because, you know, then they might have to really jack up rates very quickly to catch up and that this could be very detrimental to the economy. I mean, give me a break. I mean, the Fed, if the Fed was worried about being behind the curve, they're years and years too late. I mean, the Fed is already acting too slowly. Interest rates have barely been risen. In fact, The mistake that the Fed made was in lowering rates to zero in the first place. That never should have been done. The minute they did that, they sealed their fate, right? The minute they checked us into this monetary roach motel, there's no way to get out. That is the reason that the Fed has been so reluctant to raise rates, because they're afraid of what's going to happen. It's already too late, right? Those horses have long since left this barn. It's amazing that so many people are looking at how rates are at a half a percent. We were at zero for like eight years. And now people are saying, "Uh uh-oh, it could be a problem if they wait too long to raise rates. Duh, it is a huge problem. They already waited much too long. And then one of the things that Leisman said, which I thought was really unbelievable, although actually, you know, anything this guy says, I guess I would believe it. But he said that one of the reasons the Fed is not worried about erring on allowing inflation to get too high is because he said the Fed likes to fight inflation. They just don't like fighting deflation which I thought was a ridiculous comment because it's actually the reverse. What do you mean they like fighting inflation and they don't like fighting deflation? The last thing the Fed wants to do is fight inflation because fighting inflation is unpopular, right? You got to take the punch bowl away. When you're fighting the so-called deflation, you get to spike the punch bowl. You get to be the life of the party, right? When the Fed has to fight inflation, they have to start jacking up interest rates. That means they have to make the stock market go down. That means they have to make the real estate market go down. They have to make the bond market go down. Nobody likes the Fed that is jacking up interest rates. You think um, Paul Volcker was popular when he was jacking up interest rates? That they were burning him in effigy. I mean, he was everybody's whipping boy. The last thing Yellen wants to do is have to be the, the, the person who takes away the punch bowl. And not only that, I mean, it's not just taking away the punch bowl. I mean, this is going to be this massive uh, um, hangover 
when the alcohol stop, stops flowing. Because if, if uh, Yellen has to fight inflation, not only is she going to crash the financial markets, she's going to create another financial crisis. She's going to force the government to have to slash government spending. Right? They're going to have to have massive reductions in entitlement spending. The government might even have to default on the national debt. So all these bad things are going to happen if the Fed has to fight inflation. On the other hand, when they fight, when they fight deflation, they get to be everybody's buddy. Right? They get to slash interest rates. Everybody's happy. Wall Street is happy. Homeowners are happy. The government is happy. They can run bigger deficits. They can promise more free stuff, right? Because they they don't have to worry about paying for their spending because they can run bigger deficits. The Fed's going to monetize it. Everybody loves you when you're cutting rates and fighting deflation. So this is nonsense. The last thing, believe me, the last thing Yellen wants to do is fight inflation. That's why she always wants to talk about how quickly she would fight it if it ever reared its head, because she's hoping she doesn't have to, because she can't, right? That is something that she can't do. Like when Janet Yellen did start to testify, somebody asked her a question about the Fed's balance sheet. And of course, the balance sheet is never going to contract. And, and thus far, it hasn't contracted. And what Janet Yellen said is she said, well, you know, yes, you know, we would like the balance sheet to be smaller. Of course, she'd like it to be smaller. I mean, my thought was, I bet she'd like to be taller, too. Right. There's probably a lot of things that she'd like, but they're not going to happen. I mean, they can't shrink that balance sheet. That's why they haven't done it. And again, they talk about doing it as if they actually can, but they really can't. I mean, could they try to shrink it a tiny bit the way they raised interest rates a tiny bit just to kind of pretend that they can do it just to get the process started so that they can again pretend that they actually can see it through to its completion maybe but I don't even think they're going to get that far I think the Fed is going to have to reverse course and go back to a QE they're going to have to start cutting interest rates but this whole thing this whole hearing it's just one big circus, you know, apart from all this grandstanding uh, where these politicians, you know, just try to, you know, question Janet Yellen. You know, one person asked Janet Yellen, why is he, the economy growing so slowly? I mean, part of the reason it's growing, growing so slowly is because of Congress, because of the senators and the rules and the regulations and the taxes. But the other reason is because of the Fed. It's the Fed's monetary policy that is designed to prop up bubbles on Wall Street and to prop up the government. But that is what is preventing the economy from restructuring in a way that would actually produce a a genuine recovery. So you have senators who are asking the Fed chairman why the economy is growing so slowly. They're the reason. And of course, Janet Yellen's not really going to say why. She really basically said she didn't know why. I mean, and the real reason is, well, we don't have productivity growth. And that got brought up. And then the senator asked, well, why don't we have productivity growth? Well, she doesn't know. Well, they don't know because they are the cause of it. But, you know, Janet Yellen never calls them out on on a lot of these ridiculous questions. And, you know, I would love to see uh, the Fed chairman call one of these uh, congressmen or senators out uh, for these ridiculous questions. But, you know, she acts very respectful. And, you know, but they're respectful of her because I think the reason she can't call them out is because the whole thing is a circus. I mean, she's like the ringleader of this circus. Now, one of the senators asked her about, you know, the problem with the current account deficit. And is, is this going to be a problem? And, of course, she acknowledged that it's about $500 billion a year. But in her mind, it didn't seem like it was a problem. And, of course, you know, the accumulating effect of these 
annual current account deficits is that we are the largest debtor nation in the history of the world. We owe more money uh, to other countries than all the other debtor nations combined. And Janet Yellen did mention one thing that was helping to mitigate the, the severity of the problem, which is that foreigners accept a much lower rate of return on the U.S. assets that they own than the return that Americans get on the overseas assets that we own. Now, it shows you what a rotten deal is uh, when foreigners invest here, and that's because so many of them are buying our low-yielding uh, bonds. But of course, when interest rates move up or when foreigners move out of bonds, which they seem like they're already doing, and as foreigners cash in their bonds and start buying higher-yielding uh, equities or real estate where you have rent and you have dividends that are higher than the interest that they're clipping on their coupons, this current account is going to explode as Americans have to pay all this interest on the overseas liabilities that our trading partners have accumulated. That's again why I talked about before why these trade deficits are so bad because they're a big part of the current account deficit in that our trading partners are accumulating all of these assets and we have to pay them. Now, when it's just bonds and we have to pay low interest rates, it's not as bad. When interest rates go up, it's going to be much more problematic. It's going to be a much bigger drain on our national income to have to pay interest. And of course, you know, if they start buying real estate where we're having to send all these rental payments to our creditors and they buy up all the real estate out from under us or they start buying up the Fortune 500 and you know, they start raising prices to American consumers and they just suck out all the profits in dividends going abroad. I mean, this is what happens. Right? I use that example of basically selling off the farm, right? selling your cows to buy milk but then eventually, I mean, what do you, you know, you're broke. You've, you've lost all your assets and you're just, a, you know, a sharecropper on somebody else's farm. That's basically what's going on with America. And she, you know, didn't even seem concerned about it. Like nobody else is really concerned about this stuff. And one of the interesting things, too, is the market reaction. Because before, before she testified, they released her, her prepared statement. And one of the things that was written in there was... Yellen said that it's, you know, it's unwise to wait too long to hike rates, right? That comment, it's unwise to raise, to wait too long, got people to think, oh, okay, maybe the Fed's going to move sooner rather than later. Maybe they're even going to move as early as, as March, which is the next meeting, right? I think Goldman Sachs increased their probability of a March rate hike from 15% to 20%. But this, you know, the goal was up about 10 bucks. And as soon as, you know, this text was leaked, it sold off negative. It did manage to recover by the end of the day. And I think it was up 2 or $3, but it surrendered the gains. Uh, the dollar, which was down, rallied. Bonds got hit. 10-year got all the way back up to about 2.5% again before it ran into some resistance. It seems to have a little trouble uh, breaking through that, just like oil, you know, oil got above uh, 54 again. But every time it seems to get up there, it's running into some resistance. I do expect uh, this to, this to change as these resistance levels ultimately are going to be uh, pierced through. But who cares what she says? I mean, she's been talking about this for years. And, you know, whether the Fed raises rates by a quarter point in March or June, I mean, in the scheme of things, it really doesn't matter because it's too little too late if they even do it. But again, if you listen to what Janet Yellen said in her prepared remarks, she said that monetary policy is not on a preset course, that her uh, talk about the appropriateness of future rate hikes is all contingent on the Fed being accurate in their forecasts for the economy, 
for inflation, for unemployment. And so if the Fed ends up being wrong, then they may do something completely different. I mean, as far as Yellen is concerned, she could be cutting rates, right? She could be doing more QE. It all depends on what the data is. Now, based on her judgment, she believes that the economy is going to keep getting better. And so it may be appropriate to raise interest rates if she's right. But she doesn't have a good track record of being right. I mean, the Fed is constantly overestimating the strength of the economy. And they've also overestimated their ability to raise rates. I mean, remember, they were going to raise rates four times last year, right? Beginning of the year, they were going to raise rates four times and they only raised them once. They didn't do it until December. So why do people think the Fed is going to be any more successful in delivering three rate hikes in 2017 when they can only deliver one in 2016? Earlier today, before Janet Yellen took to the podium, we also got the January producer price number. And producer prices, I think, were supposed to rise by three-tenths of a percent. Instead, they rose by six-tenths of a percent, which is the biggest jump, I think, in almost five years uh, in, a, in a monthly increase in producer prices. Even if you strip out food and energy, right, the so-called core that was up four tenths as opposed to the two tenths that they were looking for. And, you know, uh, the, I think it was yesterday we got much worse than expected inflation news coming out of Germany. Big jump in producer prices in Germany. In fact, uh, year over year now we're up one point nine percent German consumer price infl- inflation. That is right at the upper end of the ECB's uh, ban because their objective, according to the way they define it, is to make sure inflation is close to but below 2%. Well, I mean, that's 1.9, right? I mean, that's about as close as you can get to 2 without actually being at 2. So that would mean, all right, inflation is right there. So you got success. You need to raise interest rates. You need, in fact, before you could do that, you got to stop doing your uh, quantitative easing program. But we did get worse than expected inflation numbers in Germany. Last night, we got much worse than expected inflation numbers coming out of China. So inflation is picking up everywhere. And of course, these are just producer prices. You know, the Fed is more concerned about what the consumer pays, the end consumer. But obviously, businesses are also consumers. They're buying stuff. They have to pay the higher prices. They also buy uh, labor as well. So they have to pay wages. That's the price of, of hiring people. But prices are going up. It doesn't really matter if you're a business or you're just a consumer. You're still having to pay higher prices. A lot of that results from inflation. But of course, If a business is paying higher prices for the goods that it buys, it stands to reason that it's going to try to raise the prices for the goods that it sells. So ultimately, the consumer is going to be eating higher prices as well. And I think this is just the beginning. We're going to get a lot more hotter than expected numbers from both producer prices, consumer prices, not just in America, but around the world. And you know what? It's not even going to matter if uh, central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, nudges up interest rates by another 25 basis points, whether she does it in March or waits till June. It's not going to matter because the rate of inflation is increasing at a faster pace than the rates are rising, which means that real interest rates are falling, even if nominal rates are rising. 
Yet the dollar continues to move up. It, you know, it didn't make a new record high uh, or even a new high for this move, but the dollar index moved back above 101. The dollar index was negative before uh, Janet Yellen's uh, testimony came out. In fact, the dollar didn't even make much of a move on the higher than expected inflation numbers. It wasn't until they released uh, the prepared remarks about how it would be a problem if the Fed waited too long to raise rates that you saw the spike up in the dollar. Meanwhile, you know, I read a lot of the newspapers that were covering the increase in wholesale prices, producer prices, and they didn't seem concerned because they thought that, well, the strong dollar was going to keep a lid on future price increases. The strong dollar has already kept the lid on past price increases. The dollar is near a 14 or 15 year high. It's topping out. It's going lower. And so once the dollar starts to go down, that is simply going to accelerate the upward pressure that is already mounting for consumer prices. I mean, if we're getting these increases with a strong dollar, imagine how much bigger the increases are going to be when we have a weak dollar. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that you might still have the strong dollar is because a lot of people still believe that if we have so kind of border adjusted tax, that it means the dollar is going to have this big 25% increase. I mean, I talked about that before. This is the most nonsensical thing I've ever heard, that all you have to do is impose a 20% tax on imports, and that guarantees a 25% increase in the value of your currency so that your consumers don't actually pay the tax. The government collects a windfall, but it's foreigners who pay it. That foreigners just decide that because the U.S. government raised taxes, that they're just going to sell their products and accept 25% less than that they were getting before. I mean, if that's the case, why not have a 50% border adjusted tax? Why not have a 100% tax? I mean, have generate all this tax revenue that's paid for by people in other countries who can't vote. I mean, this is all nonsense. But to the extent that people actually believe this, well, maybe it's keeping some kind of bid in the dollar. But, you know, it's most likely that we're not even going to get that border adjusted tax. I mean, you have all these big retailers right there. They're going to Washington, D.C. They're all protesting this. And I already outlined this in an earlier podcast. And nobody is talking about this other than me. I've never heard anybody on television or radio bring this up. And that is if you have the border uh, adjusted tax the way it's being proposed, which means that corporations cannot deduct the cost of their imports, meaning that if you buy an imported product through a U.S. store, then you're going to have to pay the 20% tax. But if you don't, if you bypass the U.S. store and just go online and order the identical product from a foreign uh, retailer and have it shipped, you avoid the 20% tax. So the way Americans avoid the tax is by avoiding American merchants. So this would be a huge uh, problem for Walmart and all sorts of retailers. And so it's probably not going to happen. And when they decide that it's not going to happen, that should put some downward pressure on the dollar because so many idiots actually believe that the enactment of such a tax would be a positive for the dollar, that if the prospect is gone, well, then the dollar should decline. But it would be my opinion that to the extent that we did get a border-adjusted tax and there was any kind of knee-jerk rally in the dollar based on this cockamamie theory, that it would be a great opportunity to sell the dollar because then I think it would drop like a stone. Now, I was also on uh, CNBC Futures Now uh, earlier today, 
And, you know, the subject of inflation came up because I guess maybe because of the PPI coming out today. And they, one of the guys, not the woman who was interviewing me, but I, some guy, I, I don't know, I couldn't see who it was because I, I really don't look at the monitor. So I don't know. I just know it wasn't Scott Nation. So, you know, it was somebody a step above Scott Nation's. But anyway, somebody was saying something to me about, hey, you know, Peter, you always said that gold would go up because of inflation. And, you know, but it's down today. So you're wrong. I mean, like gold being down on any given day somehow means that I'm wrong by saying that gold's an inflation hedge. I mean, first of all, gold was up today. It just happened to be down at the time that we had the interview, but it ended up finishing higher on the day. But it doesn't even matter. You cannot uh, prove or disprove something based on one day in the market. I mean, gold could react to all sorts of things. In fact, the reason that gold sold off, it was up earlier in the day. It sold off on the reaction to Yellen's comments because, hey, that's what these traders are looking for. But you know what? Yellen's going to speak again tomorrow, and gold could have the opposite reaction. In fact, maybe gold's going to recover what it lost today based on what Yellen is going to say or not say uh, when she takes her show uh, to the House of Representatives. Tomorrow, And in fact, the same guy was trying to give me some crap about gold because then he started talking about how I'm wrong on gold or because gold had several years in a row where it went down. And so this proves that gold's not a good inflation hedge. And I'm saying, do you, I mean, what does this prove? I mean, so you can't have a bear market you know, or a correction or in a, in, a, in a long-term bull market. I tried to point out to this guy and it was hard because he kept interrupting me. But, you know, gold went from under 300 in 1999 to almost 1900 in, what, 2011? I mean, that is an enormous gain. I mean, it's entitled to a pullback. And, yes, the pullback went on for three or four years, a bigger pullback than I thought was going to happen, and it lasted longer. But nobody's perfect. Nobody can know exactly how large a correction is going to be or how many years it's going to take. But meanwhile, gold is still above 1200 That's four times higher than it began the bull market. And this is just a pause. We're going higher. We're going to go up above 1900 We're going to go way above 1900 But the fact that we had a correction, look, how many corrections does the stock market have? It has lots of corrections. Yet, People on these television shows don't poke fun at the stock market bulls by pointing out uh, the bear markets and saying, well, this proves that your advice to buy stocks is wrong because we've had bear markets in stocks. I mean, we've had bigger bear markets in stocks than we've had in gold. And in fact, these bear markets have lasted a long time. And, you know, other countries, look how long the Japanese stock market's been in a bear market. I mean, you could have bear markets that can last for decades, for generations. But we had a pretty big bear market. In the U.S., look, the Nasdaq was at 5,000 in 2000, and it's barely above 5,000 now. I mean, most of the last 15 years, it was way below 5,000. So does that mean, you know, you discredit anybody who was ever recommended buying the Nasdaq because they had such a bad bear market? They don't do that, but they, they have a double standard because anybody who talks about gold, all they want to do is point to the fact that it went down from 1,900. They never look at the fact that it started rising from under 300, or they don't even want to go back... Uh, to 1971 when it was uh, $35 an ounce and say, okay, here you got a commodity that's gone from $35 an ounce up to 1900 That seems like a big bull market to me. That's a massive uptrend. Right? That's actually probably a bigger uptrend than the Dow. Right? But no, all they want to focus on is the years that it declined. Meantime, I tried to point out to this guy who's making fun of me about gold that gold is up about 8% this year. 
That's a lot more than the stock market or maybe more than double the, the Dow. That gold stocks, junior gold mining stocks are up better than 35% this year. I mean, gold stocks today, the GDXJ again today was up more than the Dow percentage-wise. Um, you know, But nobody is talking about what's going on in gold or gold mining stocks, which is perfect as far as I'm concerned. The less people that talk about this bull market, the better, right? The bull markets that you should worry about are the ones that everybody's talking about, the ones that everybody gets excited about, like what's going on in the Dow, right? There, people should be worried because everybody is convinced that this is going to continue and that everybody should own. Nobody is talking about the stealth bull market that's going on in these gold stocks, right? Which is perfect because that's the type of bull market that has legs, right? It can last. It can continue. It's not only climbing a wall of worry. It's climbing a wall of obscurity. It's climbing a wall that nobody even notices. That's even the better stage, right? When no one's even noticing it. Once they start noticing it and then they start worrying about it, then it can start climbing the wall of worry. But right now it's, you know, it's climbing the invisible wall that nobody even notices, which I think is an even better time to be involved in these stocks. But this just shows that people are just starting to figure this out. Meanwhile, right, the selling continues in U.S. Treasuries. I mean, we bumped up against resistance uh, again on the 10 year today was at two and a half. And we keep banging on this door, banging on this door. Eventually, we're going through this because there is massive selling all around the world. People trying to get out of the U.S. bond market because they all believe the Fed's going to keep raising rates. So if the Fed's going to keep raising rates, then bond prices have to go down. And again, Janet Yellen talked about the Fed shrinking its balance sheet. Now, I don't think they're actually going to do it, but most people still haven't figured that out yet. They think the Fed is going to be selling uh, treasuries or at least allowing treasuries to mature, which means the U.S. government is going to have to be selling more treasuries in order to replace the ones that the Fed doesn't roll over. So people want to get out in front of that freight train. They want to front run the Fed. In fact, they also want to front run the Treasury because to the extent we ever get this fiscal stimulus, you know, Donald Trump is promising this spectacular, awesome, incredible tax cut. Well, to the extent that we get any tax cut at all, and we get more government spending on infrastructure, on the border, on national defense. I mean, these already enormous budget deficits are going to get even bigger. And if the Fed is not monetizing them, in fact, if the Fed is saying that not only are we not going to grow the balance sheet to accommodate these larger deficits, we're going to compound the larger deficits by not rolling over the maturing bonds that we already own. Obviously, people need to front run this trade in a big way. And at some point, we're going to start to see a bigger move up in bonds. And what's really going to be the signal that it's coming to an end is when you get the bond market falling, but the dollar falls too, right? That is ultimately going to be, in fact, the trifecta is going to be gold going up, the dollar going down, and bonds going down all at the same time, because that's what should happen. Higher inflation that the Fed cannot fight because we're too broke and we're too levered up means that bonds go down, the dollar goes down, and gold goes up. And eventually, the stock market cannot continue to thrive in an environment of rising inflation, which devalues corporate earnings, and rising interest rates, which causes the present value of those devalued earnings to diminish.
Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.